Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today I am so honored to be joined by theater writer Douglas Cohen. Douglas has two very exciting projects happening now. First, his memoir, How to Survive a Killer Musical, about his journey as the lyricist, composer, and librettist of the musical No Way to Treat a Lady was just released. I have to say that this memoir is one of the most entertaining, readable, and dramatic accounts of what it's really like to put on a musical that I've ever read. I can't recommend it highly enough. In addition, a studio album of Douglas's musical The Big Time, featuring Santino Fontana, Jackie Hoffman, and more, was also just released. In addition to these projects, Douglas has also authored or co-authored the musicals The Gig, The Opposite of Sex, Children's Letters to God, and more. So now, without further ado, here's Douglas Cohen. Great. And so I'd love to start by talking about kind of the impetus for writing this book and how the idea came to you. There was that moment when I said, I need to write this book. I mean, I had been thinking about these diaries for a long time uh, because they were just sitting there and uh, no one had ever read them. I, I offered them to my parents when I came back from London. So they were not the complete diaries, but just, I think it was just Leatherhead. And, um, and my mom read them. Uh, my, my dad, I don't know if he did, but my mom did. And she said, my God, that's, you've got another play there. <laughs> and I always felt whenever I went back to them, that there was a, a good story to be told. But I didn't quite know how to tell it. And uh, one would be the opportune time. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. And um, I was watching um, on Netflix. I saw that the best, worst thing that could have happened was being aired. And I'd seen it when it first premiered at Alice Tully Hall. And Lonnie was there. And I think... Stephen Sondheim as well. Um, and I watched it again, and I had a very powerful reaction to it. And I, I got very nostalgic. And I realized that the period that was being covered in Merrily, in the world premiere, was my era. The era that I began this journey. And I knew also that some of the people were directly involved with No Way to Treat a Lady. You know, Jason Alexander was in the very first readings and demos and backers auditions, and he was so crucial to its evolution in the early stages. And Liz Calloway was cast as the very first Sarah Stone. And, and then Lonnie Price himself was later our director when we were supposed to have a commercial production in New York, and that, of course, <laughs> didn't quite culminate. So I started to explore these journals again and realized that I had the, the opportunity and the desire 
to make something of it, to create my story and put it down for some kind of posterity. I didn't know if there would be an audience for it. I didn't know if uh, it would ever get published, but I just felt the desire and I had great joy in finally revisiting this era. And so it flowed in a way that felt so natural to me uh, that it really didn't take very long for there to be a draft. And it was completely overwritten, as I tend to do. I overwrite. But it also reflected, I think, the experience. And um, and I showed it to a few friends. And um, I showed it to my wife. And I showed it to my agent. And she said, I think you should go back and do another draft. And she had some comments. I did them. And then we started submitting it to publishers. So that was the genesis. And how did you decide within the book how much to kind of quote from that original diary and how much? Ah. <laughs> well, initially what I did was I just transcribed everything. Yeah, so I would have it all there. And, uh, and there was too much of it. That was one of the big criticisms was there's just too much. I mean, I even transcribed the entire ASCAP Musical Theater Workshop presentation. So I had every word that Charles Strauss, Frank Rich, Stephen Schwartz, and Burton Lane said. Um, and that was much too much information, TMI. <laughs> but uh, I just felt it was better to have more than less. I didn't actually use a lot of diary that came later. Like I had um, journals for Cahos when I went on, and um, I had much more material at Borgio Varezzi. I had a whole journal devoted to that. That was the apotheosis of, of my journey in many ways. Um, and, um, and yet I just, you know, felt as I was writing the piece that it was, it was starting to take a shape. And it was very clear to me that New York, the world premiere, was going to be a definite big chunk of the book. And then I felt that London and Leatherhead slash Leatherhead took on a life of its own because it was really the first time that I was away from home for any period of time. And I was functioning as a writer. And I thought when I left for London, they speak the same language. So this is not going to be a difficult transition. But they don't. <laughs> you know, we have similar words but different meanings. There's a different criteria um, in terms of what they perceive to be, uh, I write this in the book about sentiment and sentimentality, um, what they like in terms of black comedy. Um, so I had to learn and navigate all anew with that and deal with the fact that I was alone. And I'm not trying to call attention to it like, oh, poor me. It was a great, great feeling to have that freedom. But nonetheless, after extended period of time, you begin to feel as if you're losing contact with those people that really are your most valuable support system. And it just felt like it was me out there and Vivian, Madelon. But then when Vivian had problems with the producers, I felt, again, it was, it was something I was going on on my own. And then the rest of the book kind of, um, you know, I knew the whole Lonnie Price chapter was going to be substantial. 
because that was a very important period. Again, we're trying to do our first commercial production and working with Lonnie was an incredible experience. Wow, what what a really bright and inspiring person. Um, but his loss was keenly felt. And uh, and then the rest of the book was so interesting because it it sort of fell into place in terms of my being able to voice some things that I've been feeling for a very long period of time uh, as a writer in the middle ground, which is how I define myself, um, that I'm not someone who was celebrated and produced on Broadway and got a Tony nomination or Tonys, um, not someone that was also obscure, <laughs> but rather, you know, respected, but nonetheless in that middle ground. And I think it's an interesting vantage point. And it gave me an opportunity to say, you know, attention must be paid, even to people like me <laughs> and to what we go through. Because a lot of times that's, that is really the heart and soul of what theater is. You know, we love those success stories. We love those stories about Spider-Man, you know, the debacles. But when you think about it, we also love shows that occupy the middle ground, the ones that um, we're passionate about, but not everyone is as familiar with or, or is passionate about. Um, the general public may not have discovered them, but those shows often are the ones that we remember at the end of the day, and those experiences, certainly. That is fascinating to think about that way. And you mentioned at the end of the book that there was going to be a production at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Yes. <laughs> I believe that's since happened. And what was it like to go and see it? And Oh, it was, it was so much fun. I mean, I have to say this trip to, we went to the UK, then we went to Edinburgh. And uh, the UK had its bump. Uh, we were there first. Guys and Dolls is a personal favorite of mine. I played Sky Masterson. I was so, so looking forward to seeing the uh, production at the Bridge Theater. And we, my wife and I went to um, the Paul McCartney exhibit at um, the National, it's the National Gallery or the National Photo Gallery. I always get confused. But anyway, it's all his, his own photographs of the Beatles during that time when they were just, well, they were always on top of the world, but it was that early period that we all, think so fondly about and um, we somehow got so involved with the exhibit and we were told by someone oh yeah it's just 20 minutes from here you know it's a straight shot well we left at 6 30 and Kathy was asking somebody directions and she said oh it's it's a journey <laughs> <laughs> and we looked at our you know our GPS and it said it would be an hour if we went wow. by foot and we tried to do it. We really did. We were running along the Thames. I mean, it was just not a pretty picture. And Kathy hailed a cab. And we ran over to the cab. She got in. I got in. And I hit my head on the door jam with such oh. force that I blacked out for a, for a second or two. And it was just terrible. Um, so it was a lot of pain. We went to the Bridge Theater. And we got there. And she was wise. She, she she wisely decided, you know, we should find the house doctor or somebody, some, someone on hand is going to be good with medical, medical right. attention. 
And so uh, we uh, <laughs> we found someone who was who couldn't have been better. She was great, Georgie. She put an ice pack on. She dressed the wound. I was bleeding. You know, with all that stuff. And she said, "You know, I don't know if you have a concussion. I, I honestly can't say, and it's your decision. But um, you can stay and see the show. You can leave an intermission, and we can still refund your money if you do leave an intermission." But just to let you know that the ERs start to close and, you know, they don't call them ERs, but they call them something ANNs or something. Um, and I just realized that with the guys and dolls, there's a lot of bells and whistles that go off. There's a lot of neon and strobe and all those things that, you know, they always say if you have a concussion, you shouldn't look at a computer. So I thought that's all I need to do is sit in that seat with a semi-concussion and it's going to like trigger all these things going on in my neurons and I'm I'm gonna like die. <laughs> <laughs> An intermission cat is gonna turn to me and say, How was it? I'm not, I'm just not gonna be able to speak because that'll be it. I will have gone down. So um we decided, probably judiciously, to leave. And they found us a cab, they were great, they couldn't have been nicer. I watched 20 minutes of it on a, a flat screen TV <laughs> backstage while we waited for the cab. And then we went to uh, the ER and, and I was okay. I, it wasn't a concussion. So that was a little blip on the screen. We did go to Edinburgh. There was no incident in Edinburgh. Uh, they always say, say Edinburgh, so I'm trying to be authentic. Um, and uh, we saw the second performance and it was really enjoyable. The cast was very well cast. Um, they took on a lot. I have to tell you, Charles, <laughs> Nothing's easy. Uh, so I got this call from them or email. Uh, we ended up Zooming about a month before saying, we love your show. We're in the midst of rehearsals. We really want to do it. But here's the problem. We have a very nice venue at a good time, which is 8.50 at night. And we have to, however, do the whole show in 65 minutes. And you know, it is an hour and 40 minutes. Yes. <laughs> so not counting intermission. So all of a sudden I thought, oh, great. This is going to be like MTI. It's going to be like a little Broadway junior. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> no way to treat a lassie. Um, I, I, <laughs> so I went through the script and I started like slashing away, you know, like, okay, we don't need this song. I hear humming. Yeah. Well, history. And, you know. One of the beautiful people, yeah, we'll start the song here. And I really did find a nice way to tell the story expeditiously. But you know, 65 minutes is right. not a lot of time. And we have to add laughs to that, hopefully, and, you know, sound cues, which a lot of bell ringing and, you know, all those things. So anyway, they did it. They got it in at 65 minutes. It was a very truncated version. The bones were there. But if you hadn't seen the show before, I don't know. I mean, it told a story. It definitely told a story. And it was definitely a lot of fun. And the energy was great. Um, they did pre-record the music, which I would have liked it to be live. You know, then you can breathe a little bit with the actors. But because it had to be done so quickly, <laughs> if they had bothered to breathe, it would have gone into 75 minutes instead of 65. Right. So, so I understand why they made that decision, but it was it was great. It was a lot of fun, and we we had a wonderful time with the cast. And then uh, a few days later, we left, and um, I came home, and I had COVID. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I feel like I should have a T-shirt. You know, I went to Edinburgh Fringe Festival, saw my show, and got COVID. But it was all worth it, right? It was all right, worth it. Right. And well, now I'm 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 testing negative. 
I'm, I'm fine. Uh, but you know, this show always has a little bit of drama. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that, that was my drama, you know, hitting the, my head in the door jam and getting COVID. But that was that was the extent of it. And the cast, as far as I know, knock wood, they were all well and performed their last performance uh, Friday night. And you were talking about sort of in the book which productions you chose to go more in-depth in than others. And yes. I, it left me kind of curious, have there been major changes made to the show in other productions since the ones that are discussed in depth? Yes, you know, it's. I mean, this one, there was a major change because we lost about 30 minutes of the show. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd say that's major, major edit, let's say. Um, there have been others. I remember Richard Rowland, he directed a production at the Phoenix Theater in Arizona. I hope I'm talking about the right theater. Um, and for that, I did make changes. Um, I also made changes at the Cape Playhouse. I started, okay, so here's the thing. When we did that reading with Raul Sparza, Joe Calarco said, I'm going to run this by you. Of course, it's up to you. But I was talking to Raul, and we sort of feel like the show would be better if it started with Kit as the priest and not do the opening number, I Need a Life. So that to me felt like, wow, we're really going to take a step back like that? You know, <laughs> after I wrote this pretty good opening number. I mean, people really like that opening number. It does everything it's supposed to do. But he said, we thought there'd be more mystery. You know, if we didn't reveal who Kit was, we'd just see this priest. And it was kind of very much like what William Goldman had recommended at the Hudson Guild when we lost five more minutes. So because it was a reading, I said yes to it. And um, God, Raul was great. He was so powerful in this role that you could not take your eyes off of him. And the tension in that first scene, it didn't start with music. It started only with dialogue. Going into that song, a very funny thing, not a very funny thing, a heartbeat away, seemed to work. I mean, we didn't have Morris's trajectory in the same way. We didn't have his what song, which is weird. But uh, again, it was kind of Raul was like front and center and it, it was powerful. The same, like maybe two years later at the Cape Playhouse, um, Mark Shanahan was directing a production and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to explore that in a production? Mm -hmm. So that's when I recommended we not lose I Need a Life, but start the show with the priest. After he sings, heartbeat away. We would then do I Need a Life with Morris and have Kit exiting the apartment at the end of the song and joining Morris in the song. On paper, it sounded great, but in person, and we had Bradley Dean, who is, God, he's so fiercely talented, playing Kit, but it, it just felt like, when does it start to be a musical? It was just strange. and. Perhaps if we'd had a real overture and enough underscoring in the scene, that would have solved a lot of the, the issues. But without it, it was very hard to tell. And it just, for me, was difficult to ignite. You know, I, I just didn't see it igniting. So um, I tried it and then put it aside and said, you know, especially after Phoenix, 
the show is what it is. But I would be open in the future to exploring different ways of presenting the show. I'm now of the mind that I hear humming is not necessary. Um, and uh, I feel like if it's if it's missing, no one knows it's missing, which is a good sign that a song doesn't have to exist. Um, and there are other things too, other cuts that I made even for Edinburgh that I thought, well, maybe this is something I should keep in mind for the future. Because today people don't like generally long shows. And even William Goldman said, you know, I don't see this as a long piece. Nothing Wagnerian, he said. <laughs> so maybe there is something to be said that, you know, we cut too much off of Edinburgh, but maybe it's a 90 minute show. Who knows? And in the book, you're very candid in a way that a lot of memoirs are not about everyone who's been involved with the show, including some people who are still alive and still around. And was there any kind of concern about that? Or have there been reactions from those people? Well, there aren't that many of them that are still alive. But like David Kernan's alive. Um, of course, the cast of No Is True Lady, right. most of them, because one person passed away from London, sadly. Uh, you know, I feel like I was very fair. Yeah. I mean, not only fair, but I was also very accurate. I mean, I kept meticulous notes. I was writing in the in my you know notebook at rehearsals. People thought I was writing <laughs> new scenes, new lines, observations to myself, which I was much of the time. But also much of the time, I was writing in the margins, like little notes to myself, because I knew at the end of the day I would write them down into a journal. Um, I'm trying to be very balanced. That's all I can say is that I don't feel like anyone, and maybe you you have a difference of opinion on this, but I don't feel like there are any villains in the piece. Right. I feel like we're all operating as if we want the show to succeed. But a good friend of mine, wonderful performer, John Sloman, once said to me that a table can't stand with three legs. And I'm afraid that it's very true of theater that if you're not all working on the same show and working in tandem in a very collaborative process, you're going to have a three-legged table. And unfortunately, that's what happened. I, I felt like the producers in London had our best interests at heart. I felt at the end of the day, they were doing their best to really keep this piece alive. Vivian felt very offended by the way they treated him and treated me to a certain way and, and the piece and had great disagreements with them. And over tone, over some very candid things that they shared that they probably shouldn't have the day after we had our first preview. And they never recovered. The show never recovered after that. So again, people working together, their objective is to create a hit and they go about it in a different way, and it falls apart. And that's all I'm trying to be, is I'm trying to be that fly on the wall that is reporting what I experienced. Now, I'm very, very curious to know, like, for instance, Peter Slutsker, who is now Peter Marks, was, was Mo in the original production of No Way to Treat a Lady. I'm very curious to know what his experience was working on that, because... You know, Jack Hofsis was someone I really, really admired and loved. Um, 
but there were times when he disappointed me. And he disappointed me because I was approaching it as a writer. In terms of what I needed with my maiden voyage was someone who was really strong with dramaturgy. And Jack was not that. And, and sometimes in rehearsals, I felt there was time that was wasted, um, particularly when we were working on the Richard Rogers reading, less so after that. And so I sort of had a criteria that was different from, let's say, an actor. I mean, June Gable, I think, probably adored Jack, and he worked so well with her. And when, the way I see him and, and what he did to help her with all those four, five roles, I think it was really loving and and beautifully guided performance in that sense. But sometimes you don't see those things happening in front of your eyes. They're very subtle. Just as people sometimes would critique um, Hal Prince in later years, you know, that he wasn't an actor's director. But then there was Elaine Stritch who said, I'll never work with anyone else. You know, he was the best. So people have their own language. Again, all of this is through my point of view, how it impacted me. And at the end of the day, I have to own that. But I really would hope that no one would feel humiliated, embarrassed, uh, you know, that they would not be resentful. Um, I think Vivian, you know, Vivian's husband is living and I'm, yes, I'm, you know, I think about how he would respond to this. But I also really had great admiration for Vivian. And there's so much in there that praises him. So, and, and a lot of people today don't know his work. So I think it's good that I'm introducing today's generation to a man that was very important to theater. And uh, I'm not talking about Nobody True Lady, but I'm talking about the New York scene and London. And so at least people can then evaluate what they think at the end of the day this person was like. And, and certainly there's evidence of their talents. And I definitely think it is very fair, and the honesty is what makes it so compelling. Thank you. And so I'd be curious to ask, too, one of the very interesting sort of through lines throughout the book is finding the balance between the kind of comedy and horror sides of this story of No Way to Treat a Lady. <laughs> and uh, without giving too much away, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and what that process was like. Yes, very hard to achieve. And some people might say, well, maybe you didn't. <laughs> They're perfectly uh, entitled to that opinion. Um, but my feeling was I wanted to create a work that was highly theatrical. Um, that was a show that I wanted to see, you know, and if something gets too serious and graphic, I get turned off. You know, that's why I love a show. I mean, Sweeney Todd is a perfect example of that because there's so many wonderful moments of comedy in that show. And this particular uh, revival uh, with Anna Lee, it's just brilliant um, performance, you know, really minds that. Um, and certainly they did with Angela Lansbury. I mean, God, and her rapport with Len Carrieux. So that was, you know, a very important thing for me to understand embarking on this show that i didn't want to make it too serious the novel was very serious and very graphic 
and not a show I wanted to adapt. Not that, you know, I turned off from the novel after I read it, even though I wanted desperately to adapt it and to get the rights, until I figured out there's a way to make it more in keeping with the tone of the movie. Because the movie, I think, is really well done. And when you read the book, you'll have even more admiration for that film and how John Gay adapted it. Um, so that was really my overall objective, is to create something that felt like a complete entertainment that offered comedy and suspense and a love story and, um, and music that, you know, could kind of soar and, and provide a, a real story, you know, and support these very interesting characters who all have very intense needs, you know, and they're all kind of working in collusion. And at the same time, they're they're not, they're, they're kind of adversaries. It's a very interesting, uh, it, there's a menage within a menage within a menage, you know, <laughs> when you think about the triangle, of love triangle, Sarah and, and, and uh, Mo and Kit, and then you think about the mother, who's also trying to hone in on that little triangle. <laughs> and, you know, everyone feels like they need their day in court, you know, and, uh, and they're all vying for, for attention and they're all lonely people. And there's just something about that that it just screams like, okay, this is this is large enough to musicalize. Yet I, to quote Bill Goldman, nothing Wagnerian. Get in, get out. Give them an entertainment. That's what Jack Cox's did so brilliantly. It was really a very fast moving, um, had a real tempo. And if you see, I don't know if you know this, but it's on Lincoln Center Library. So you should go there and watch it, uh, the original. <clears throat> so is the York, but the York is not as well filmed as the um, the Hudson Guild. So um, that was always the biggest challenge of the piece, not only in writing it, but in watching others direct it. Because there's always that element of how far do we go with the comedy? Do we go as far as camp? Um, do we make it more of a layered love story, which is what Vivian kind of wanted to do. And um, so I've seen very different productions and some of them have really succeeded brilliantly. And one, one of my favorite ones was the one in Germany, in Saarbrücken, uh, where the acting was extraordinary. And these were Shakespearean actors sometimes that happened. The guy playing Mo had played uh, you know some of the great Shakespearean roles and he was phenomenal and he was real but he was still of a musical and the mother never seemed like she was in a, a world of camp and yet she scored every laugh it was uh, it was something to see right. and it was only done with a, a, a bass and a piano they didn't have it was two, two instruments um, so sometimes those things can be very surprising and revealing um, but uh, it's always a very delicate balance. And there are so many directors and actors who you've worked with on the show, and many of them get covered in the book. And I'd be curious, is there someone who you haven't had the chance to work with on this show who you envision would be great either as an actor or as a director? For a future That's, wow. You know, 
I mean, I'll tell you, someone comes to mind, and that's Joe Mantello, um, because um, he was at the Hudson Guild in the show before this one. And it was called Crackwalker. And I love his work. I really do. And, um, you know, he's just very expert in getting wonderful performances and keeping things very theatrical. And um, so he's someone who does come to mind. And I remember coming, seeing him at an audition once. He was in the green room and saying, you know, I, we followed you at the Hudson Guild. And uh, I've always wondered if you'd want to do a musical. And he said, oh, I don't think I'm right for musicals or something to that effect. And then, of course, later he does all these great musicals and Wicked. And, you know. <laughs> so I'd like to think I planted the seed. You know? <laughs> um, but I'd also love to see, like, uh, what a Rachel Chapkin could do, you know? Um, that could be really interesting. And then, of course... You know, I'd hate to say it, but I'd love to see Lonnie Price actually get to direct a production because he was just so right for the material. And I always felt robbed that I didn't have that opportunity. So there's a lot of good directors right now. This is I mean, Alex Timbers is someone I worked with many years ago when he did a piece on Robert Moses called Boozy. And my God, is he a visionary? Um, I saw it back then, and of course I've seen it and witnessed it so many times now. And so I, I would just be thrilled to have any any of these people uh, take an interest, and um, I'm sure there are other candidates that would be just as exciting. <laughs> and so I wonder, if for those who are listening who don't really know about it, as I didn't know a lot about it before reading the book, if you could talk a little bit about this ASCAP workshop and yes so you know we all saw a slice of it when jonathan larson and tick tick boom performed in front of sondheim you remember that scene and and yes, um, yes. and lynn has all those famous people <laughs> in the audience <laughs> well i'm not famous but i was actually in that audience oh i was definitely there and um as was i think peter peter felicia um, a good number of us were there. A good number of people who occupied the middle ground, and some of them went on to the to figuring better things. But anyway, uh, it was a very amazing time because you never knew who was going to be on the panel. You'd come to ASCAP once a month. It was on a Monday night, and the dais always had Charles Strauss. He was the one constant, and then there would be three guests. And Septwin Sondheim was there, and it would only be Charles and, and, and Sondheim because, as I say in the book, anyone else is superfluous. That's when you've got Sondheim. Um, and later, uh, Stephen Schwartz became the moderator and did a brilliant job with that. In fact, he may still be doing it. Um, so it was fascinating because I know you appreciate this, and... God love you for appreciating it <laughs> because there's so many people today I would mention these names and I don't think they would really have the same sense of what it was like but I mean Julie Stein you know and Peter Stone and you know and, and Carol Channing was there and Sheldon Harnick it was just incredible to see the people and some of them were very celebrated and someone some of them less so um and they all were very interesting. Ron Field, do you remember Ron Field? Yes, applause. Who, uh, directed Applause? Yes. Yes, and he was a choreographer for uh, Cabaret. And the second time, I, I actually presented twice at ASCAP, and the second time, 
he was on the panel and he was saying, oh, I can see this number with Carmelo with the bow and he was already choreographing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was it was really interesting to see our idols up there. And sometimes I have to say they were not what we expected. You know, sometimes uh, they didn't really listen or invest in what we were doing. Sometimes they were a little callous. Um, in fact, they could be very almost bordering some of them. I mean, not with me personally, but they could be bordering on cruel. Uh, a friend of mine had an experience that was horrible, and it wasn't during Charles's regime. It was during Stephen's forces, and my friend told me Stephen later apologized to this person. Um, and the thing is, if you have a praise coming from someone that you absolutely adore, you know, that has been your childhood idol, it is just the greatest feeling on earth. But conversely, right. if you have an idol up there who doesn't like your work, it hits you to the core. And it's it's a profound wound that you just wonder, will I ever recover from this? You know, and I was up there three times. And the third time was with No Way to Treat a Lady. And the other two times did not get good receptions, uh, by and large. And uh, Richard Adler had liked one of my shows, which was cool. Um, and uh, But Charles was very hard on me. And I, I always felt like, how am I ever going to win the respect of Charles Strauss? And then with No Way to Treat a Lady, I did. And he had given me advice. It wasn't just Charles. Charles was not a... A cruel person. There's nothing in him innately that that seems that that would be the case. Not even it wasn't callousness either. It was just that he saw that there was something in me that had potential that I wasn't tapping into, and these other projects didn't take me far enough. So he was encouraging me to good to dig deeper, and when I did that, he rewarded me. So I think it was a very fair and balanced set of criticisms but of course when you first receiving them you don't you want to get a passing grade <laughs> you want to get a star on your on your report card so i did not get that but that night at ASCAP, i did with the first time i presented no way to treat a lady when the stakes were particularly high mm -hmm. and in the book i i cover why they were so so high um but it, it that period with ASCAP was a period that um I don't think we'll ever witness again. Right. Um, there were times when people would be extemporaneous. I remember Julie Stein saying uh, one time, you know, that reminds me of a song I wrote that was cut from High Button Shoes. And he just went to the, to the um, piano and started playing this song and singing it. And we all had to just kind of stop and take it in. <laughs> you know, he, Charles had kind of had to had to kind of surrender the dais at the podium to Julie Stein while he did a three-minute number, but it was Julie Stein. It might not have been just in time. It wasn't his top drawer, Julie Stein, but it was a Julie Stein number. And I remember Martin Charter was on the on the podium and he was just listening and nodding. He went, yeah, that was really interesting, Julie. <laughs> <laughs> Casual, just to say, well, thank you for that little uh, station identification. But that was what happened. People told great anecdotes. Um, Marvin Hamlish was so, so amusing. And it was almost like, you don't, if you weren't invested in the evening as a writer, you could just attend and have an entertaining time. Right. When would you ever see this, you know, amalgamation of talent that just 
came together to discuss their careers and give their advice and inject hopefully some pearls of wisdom. And then we had Danish with them. <laughs> That's the other thing. You, you know, they'd step off the dais and at halftime and they'd stand there with their coffee in Danish. And if you wanted to talk to them, you could. And I, I approached Peter Stone once about a show. And sure enough, he, he read the show. He called me at my first job and gave me advice. It was, you know, kind of extraordinary that we could have that close proximity, which doesn't happen now for various reasons, as we can well imagine. We're in a different world now with security and, you know, what have you. It's just a, it's a whole different ballgame. Right. And another mentor from the kind of older generation that you mentioned is Frank Gilroy, but not as much. I know as it connects to No Way to Treat a Lady, but I would love to hear more about him and what your relationship with him was like. It's hard for me to talk about Frank without getting emotional because he was, he really was like a father. He was my guru. He was, he was someone that always was consistently there. He was generous to a fault. Um, he was a sounding board. He invited me to so many social functions. I got to be friendly with his family, which is an amazing family. Such a talented and giving family. Um, I was, um, <laughs> he loved the gig. I mean, he just loved seeing it and experiencing it. Whereas William Goldman never wanted people to know he was in the room. I remember at the O'Neill, the first night, uh, Frank was coming out to see our, our presentation. And I said, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if you'd be embarrassed if I introduced you, because sometimes people, no, 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 no. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he said a few words to the crowd. He was such a great raconteur, and he said just enough. Um, he, he was just a avuncular, kind of an Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, and then I remember he went off to Boston to see a production of the gig. I mean, that was a major schlep for him. Um, and then the greatest sacrifice they made was when the gig was done at the Nymph Festival. And he was already like 86 or something. And there was a press conference. And I said, would you be able to get there and say a few words? And um, he said, I'll be there. And he, he arrived with a cane. Um, he, he said it was an affectation, but, you know, he was older and he needed it. But he made this lovely short speech, which was basically saying, there are times you work on shows with people and you hate them, or you don't get along, and the show turns out to be brilliant. And there are times you work with people and you love them, and it's unfortunately not a show that, that succeeds. And then there are those very, very few times where you work with someone with whom you feel a great deal of affection and the show is actually good. I mean, that, that's the problem in the gig. So just get very emotional talking about his place in my life because, you know, I just miss him. And he's of another era that um, I don't think we will see that that era again. It was a, such a hardworking guy. Wrote every day of his life. Every day. He had journals that are apparently in, in Dartmouth. And um, 
<laughs> you you can't read them until 30 years after his death. <laughs> so I hope I live long enough to go out there and read what he had to say about me. But uh, I just loved his work ethic. I so responded to that and his sense of decency and uh, and the support that he had for me and the belief that he had in me and and the welcoming of his family which is still something I feel very much to this day. So you asked about Frank Gilroy and that's Frank in a nutshell. Yes, that is so beautiful to hear about. Thank you. He was a wonderful writer, by the way, and there's a lot of his work that people aren't familiar with, but I'll tell you, there's a play he wrote about his experiences in the war, but MTC was going to do a revival of it, and then they just couldn't find the right stars for it. But, oh, it's a wonderful play. And it was up for a Drama Desk Award. It was uh, very well heralded at the time that it was done for its world premiere. But I, I think what I love about him is his economy. He's not, he doesn't overstate things. He's really a subtle writer, which is kind of different for me. But that's what I attempted to do with the gig, you know, is to write a story that's where the emotions were so present that they weren't always written in capital letters. And I find those kind of pieces with subtext to be very powerful and layered. And that's what Frank did particularly well. And on the other sort of side of a relationship like that, what has it been like for you to kind of observe writers of a younger generation now and sort of mentor them? And... Oh, I wish I could say I've been better at mentoring, but I, I had done some mentoring. I mean, there was a student of mine at the Neighborhood Playhouse who just wrote me a couple months ago, and she works in Canada as, um, her name is Brooke, if she's listening. Uh, she works in Canada, and, and she does a lot of work on film sets. I think she does sound. And she's writing this really interesting piece dealing with that aspect, and it's a musical. And um, she sent me a lot of it, and, and I was really happy to receive it. And I, I gave her some advice, you know, based on what I learned, uh, because she didn't know about a lot of the, the ground rules, you know, and how to uh, choose a protagonist and the journey that person takes and uh, the I want the needs. Um, and she was really thrilled to get that advice, you know, and it felt good. It really did feel good that I was able to give back a little. And um, there's somebody who's asking me questions about a presentation in New York and how to interest people in attending. And I've been giving a little bit of advice there. Yeah, it's, it's a nice feeling to give back. Um, I'm not in a position where I'm able to do that very often. And I feel to some extent that I should put myself more into that position because I, I love teaching. I loved teaching at the Neighborhood Playhouse um, in, sound and, in song interpretation. I feel I have something valid to contribute. And uh, I've done master classes and that has, that's given me a lot of uh, real satisfaction. So if anyone's interested in a master class, I'd be happy. If anyone wants to just coach, I just coached somebody the other day for his audition on the Phil Monty. Um, so, but what I was going to say about BMI is I might want to just come back to BMI as uh, I've been offered a, a 
job just to be an instructor for a day, you know? And I think it would be really interesting to do that. It scares me because I, I, I hope that I have something to say. You know, you often hear a song and go, how, how am I going to critique this? How can I give them? The, the trick is, Charles, is you don't tell them how you would write it. Right. That's the hard part. It's not what you would do. But you have to ask the right questions that can tap into how they can improve their vision and be encouraging uh, and give them some illumination. It's Teaching is very hard. And I have to say the people that have taught me well have been exceptional. And and you know when you find an exceptional person. Uh, Maury Yeston was pretty brilliant at that, I have to say. There were times that he missed it. And there were times in class when we'd go, no, nope, didn't get it. But my God, when he got something, it was like the whole world opened up before your eyes. It just, this man has such intelligence and he's so perceptive and he has so many colors to draw on. And you can see that in his work too. You know, he understands how to make things in, inherently theatrical. So those teachers, I value, and I hope one day maybe I can even join them in a very small way. <laughs> and you mentioned earlier with No Way to Treat the Lady this kind of litmus test of being on Broadway that people talk about. And was there ever a consideration of bringing the show to Broadway or plans to do that or anything like that? Well, it, there was always that in mind. Uh, and when we, uh, we had the support of Jujamson pretty much, which was very cool to have when we went into um, rehearsals for, for the original world premiere. Howard Rogat, who was the general manager at the time and, and had some sway, um, I think Dick Wolf ran Jamson at the time, and not the one from Law and Order, but, uh, and uh, they were always keenly interested. Um, but we didn't get the New York Times review we had hoped for. Although I personally look at it now and think there was a lot of good quotes in that. It was, they called it a bouquet size Sweeney Todd or something like that with a dash of psycho. I mean, that's, that's a great quote. <laughs> you know, when you think that uh, I love your perfect now change ran forever based on that thing with Seinfeld set to music. Remember uh, that was like Michael Summers or somebody had said that in the star ledger. Uh, that's, Sweeney Todd, Dash of Psycho, that's, those are good references. Yes. So somebody wasn't necessarily picking up on that. But um, at any rate, Juju Ampson was interested. And there was that moment where we were trying to court another, somebody else's interest, because that would have been the momentum needed. And Howard Brogan called me at work when I was a personnel counselor and said, can you tell me who else is interested? And I said, why should that matter? If you people like the show and believe in it, why should it matter who is your competition? He said, I said, you don't go into a, a clothing store and say, who else wants this blazer? <laughs> I know, Doug, but it's different in the theater. And it's true, isn't it? Isn't it different? I mean, when you think about it, if two people want something, it starts a bidding war. You're on eBay. Another person wants it, you want it. You know, it's just, it's human nature somehow. But I wish it weren't. I wish people could just stand by their convictions and say, I like this show, I want to present it. 
and um, and that would be that. But for some reason, that's not the way the world works. But yes, it is. It is. I don't know if it's my ultimate objective now. The older I get, because the stakes are so high. But if the roundabout or MTC wanted to do a revival, I with the right director, I think it could be great. You know, it's be like you know, put it into the in fifty four below, fifty four above, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Not below, but it's been there. We had the thirtieth anniversary below, but this time we go to the second floor, um, and uh, that would be cool. You know, just know that I I made it. I got to Broadway. It's like when Tyler's show got to Broadway check that box and uh and and move on to other dreams and so at the same time as this book is coming out there's also a release of a cd of the big time your musical and what is that musical about for so douglas carter bean you know such a talented guy and he's had so many great pieces out there like xanadu and little dog laughed and sister act he was writing a screenplay back in the 1990s for uh, Oliver Stone. And it was about a down on their luck Atlantic City duo named Tony and Donna Stevenetti, who get booked on a cruise. It's supposed to be, at the time it was supposed to be, I think he Tony gets them booked on a gay cruise because he doesn't want to lose his wife. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, they don't get on that cruise. In this, in the show now, it's not a gay cruise. It's it's actually a cruise for older people called the Floating Dead, uh, and uh, and they get booked on that cruise. But then mistakenly, at the same time, Steve Edie, Stephen Stephen Edie, Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet get their booking person gets the signals crossed, so they get booked on the second rate cruise, and Tony and Donna Stephen Edie get booked on a UN peacekeeping vessel <laughs> that is taken over by Russian spies. <laughs> and there's two rooms, the useful not at all room, which which the entertainment goes, because they're useful not at all. <laughs> and the useful room, which is where all the diplomats go. And the guy who is head of the spies named Residue, who's posing as a cater waiter, um, thinks that he's able to subdue this whole ship. But he also, they each, each of the spies has an Achilles heel. And they're each attracted to a certain kind of Western entertainment. So uh, Grusha, who's played by Jackie Hoffman, is attracted to um, jazz. And uh, Pavlov, who's played by Will Swenson, is attracted to stand-up comedy. And Mimki, played by Raymond Bocour, is attracted to choreography. Residue is a secret fan of Edie Gourmet. <laughs> but he's never seen her because he only gets bootleg tapes that never feature her likeness. So when he hears she's on the ship, he orders her into his cabin and reveals his, his big plan for taking over the world. <laughs> and now she has this information, Debbie Gravitt, playing <laughs> perfectly cast. <laughs> as uh, as Edie, well, not Edie, Donna, Stephen Edie. And uh, she has to then go back to the useful not the all room, which is her husband, uh, who's not really her husband, uh, a undersecretary who's posing as a nanny, an English nanny, 
and a CIA agent named Big Apple who's posing as a choreographer. And she has to enlist their help to try and fight these people without firepower, because they don't have a weapon, but using Western entertainment as a means of control and conversion to their cause. So that's the big time. <laughs> and, and it gave me a lot of great opportunities to just write fun, hopefully toe-tapping music, very Rat Pack. Um, August Eric Smoen, who is the uh, co-producer on the album, an amazing orchestrator. He's Tony nominated for Bright Star and also did Come From Away. But he has such an incredible grasp of what a big band sound should be. And he worked with a palette of 16 pieces here. And uh, there's no AI involved. <laughs> there's 16 players. And uh, he, he did also all the orchestrations for Only, the, only, uh, only Murders in the Building Season 3. So he's really, he's a star. I mean, there's, there's no one better than August. And uh, so this album, the Santino Fontana, Debbie Gravett, Will Swenson, Jackie Hoffman, Michael McCormick, Bradley Dean, Diane Phelan, who played Cinderella uh, on Broadway and on tour of Into the Woods. Um, Will Swenson, did I miss anyone? There's eight people. I'm so sorry if I've forgotten it, Michael. Uh, anyway, they're all on it. And it's so, I just think it's a lot of fun. I just love listening to it. I've been living with it for, you know, the last year. We recorded it a year ago now. Actually, we're celebrating an anniversary next week. And it finally gets released on uh, September 8th through uh, Concord. We'll be putting stuff on social media. Um, and Debbie did a, a video for one of the numbers, which her daughter directed and filmed, which is really cool. And uh, you would know this name, um, Kevin Solak. Do you know Kevin Solak? Yes, I know the name. Yeah, so he was uh, Diesel in the film version of uh, of West Side Story, and he was also dancing with Ariana DeBose at the beginning of um, uh, the Tonys. The, the Tonys, thank you. Uh, in the latest incarnation. So uh, anyway, he plays a manifestation, a younger manifestation of Tony. Because Santino Fontana wasn't in town that day. <laughs> <laughs> so you know what people do. They're very creative. And Kevin was available and he does this great job dancing in it. It's very, very spirited and it just reflects the, the fun we had, I think, in making it. Yes. It sounds wonderful. I'm looking forward to listening to it. Yes, I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. And and maybe. And so between all of the many musicals you've written, it seems like you've kind of fulfilled all the roles of composer, lyricist, and book writer in all different kinds of combinations. And is there a way that you kind of prefer it? Do you prefer to do all three as you did with The Way to Treat a Lady? Or That's a good question. And very perceptive that you see that. I have, it's very interesting. I mean, there are times when I've been just the composer. There have been times when I've been just the lyricist, like Children's Lyrics to God. Uh, I did this musical that we we presented in the Manhattan School of Music, the uh, Valentino's Tango, which I'm very proud. Howard Marin did the music. I did the book and lyrics. Um, so, yeah, I work in various ways. Um, I don't know if I would really attempt to do another book, music, and lyrics for a show. Um, I think it's it's something you do when you're young. 
<laughs> I think I was right to do it with the gig and no way to treat a lady because I had such a, a clear vision and I felt like these were shows that were tapping into something that was very almost autobiographical in some ways. Um, but I really do like collaboration. I just, it, you just have to make sure you're collaborating with the right person, <laughs> you know? And I've even done co-lyrics. I've, I've, I've been doing co-lyrics with Dan Ellis when we did The Evolution of Man. And that was a cool thing. I thought, like, how does this work? But it does. It just does. You know, like sometimes he'll come up with a draft and then I'll rewrite it or I'll do a draft and he'll rewrite it. Sometimes we've been in the room together and we're writing the song together. It's just, you know, it, it all, it, as long as you have the kind of rapport and sensibility that connects you. I think any kind of collaboration can be very instructive and um, and can be, you know, helpful to the process. Um, so I don't really like to label what I am, to be very honest with you, because I think even Stephen Sondheim, you know, who labeled himself as a composer, lyricist, you know that he was smart enough to be a librettist. <laughs> you know, he he wrote in a way that was, I think he like he was a librettist in many ways because the, some of those songs are like three act plays or one act plays. Um, but he also was smart enough to know that a lot can be gained through the collaborative process, and he chose his collaborators well. When you think about it, they were great, and he credited them all the time. We tend to overlook that. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question, but I do, I do just love working on theater pieces in a capacity that I feel I, it, it, any capacity that I feel I can make a contribution. And I would love to ask a little more about your musical about Valentino and uh -huh. what kind of appealed to you about that subject and the research process and all that. Um, originally, uh, Chet Walker, uh, the late Chet Walker, had brought that project to me, the idea for it. He didn't have an idea as to how to dramatize it. He just said, I know I want to do a musical about Valentino. And Howard Marin was the composer that he had enlisted, and Howard asked if I could come on board. So that's how that worked. Uh, just as with Children's Letters to God, Stu Hample contacted David Evans, and David contacted me. David was the composer. Um, grateful to both of them for those recommendations. Um, it's a piece that I, once I started to unwrap it and immerse myself in that period, I'm a big movie buff, huge movie buff, as I reveal a little bit of that in the book. And uh, I grew up at University of Connecticut and would see these amazing movies every Friday and Saturday night that were curated by these two guys at UConn who were very friendly later on with Janine Basinger at Wesleyan. You know, she's the great film historian. These guys knew what they were doing. I mean, they had a whole Douglas Cirque festival. I mean, it was, you know, and I would see Mur Murnau films. Uh, you know, I saw Sunset Boulevard when I was 11 years old on the big screen. You know, that's those are great films to be exposed to at such an early age. So I found that just immersing myself in this period of history was was just so fascinating and uh, knowing how women had such a stronghold in Hollywood, not just as actors, but also in business and in writing 
and they carried sometimes more clout than directors, screenwriters did. Um, they lost a lot of that in the 30s and 40s, but but they gained, of course, stature in as terms of uh, performers. Um, but his story was very interesting, and the thing that I found that separates it from any other story about Valentino is that I also created a character of of a woman who is like his number one fan, who uh, is going through a difficult time in her relationship. And so it's not just, how, it, the big thing was how do you show the impact that Valentino had on America? Well, it's very hard to do that, but if you start with one person, one relationship, then you have an idea of just how profound that impact was. And she, not only is fixated on him, but her husband, no, her husband, her boyfriend, uh, at first deeply resents him because he's no longer the, the, the apple of her eye. He's no longer the center of her universe. He's losing out to this icon on the screen. But little by little, he begins to evolve. And that's the thing is that America did not know anything about to be very somewhat graphic, but there's no foreplay in America. <laughs> you know, we had to learn about it by watching people on the screen. And Valentino brought a new form of romance. The fact that he opened a woman's palm and kissed her palm and other things that he did to the body, the human body, in the way that he treated them with um, respect and passion and sometimes bordering on cruelty, but he did it in a way that women were excited by it. And it's the sort of thing that we see later with James Dean and John Travolta, and you know, um, now today with um, people like uh, Harry Styles. It's that dangerous aspect, that forbidden love kind of thing. Um, and so it's really not just a show about him and, his, and, and the women in his life, and, and there were some really important relationships, and his journey, which is, paramount because he's struggling with his sexuality as well but also about the impact that he left on a nation and uh so it's 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 an ambitious show and and i think um the presentation that we did in the handful of music was was largely successful uh parker parker essie um who did the beautiful choreography and all those gorgeous um scene changes and, and movement for light in the piazza at City Center, you know, uh, you saw it, right, with Ann? Yes, yes. Yes, and he, 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 it was all that fluidity that was just, oh, he did a gorgeous job with that. So he was our uh, director choreographer, and um, we um, were knock wood going to have some activity in Europe with him. So, uh, and I'm hoping that we have another opportunity to work on it here in America, because I think it's an American story as well as a universal story. And I'd be curious to know too, have there been ideas for musicals that you've started on writing, but sort of decided in the end didn't really work? Or... Yeah, um, there have been, there have been definitely. God, so many of them. <laughs> I mean, at one point I was actually working on a, a musical version of The Visit. Uh, this was long before Ken and Ab, you know? I just thought it'd make a great musical and they obviously thought the same thing. Um, <laughs> There, there are definitely projects. There's a project now that I don't know what will happen. I'm, I'm working out with Rob Roth, but I'm not sure if, if 
what will happen because you know we're just both very consumed with other things um there was another frank gilroy piece that i was working on that i still want to go back to and i just feel like i have to find the right book writer so um that one i feel like that's just on the shelf but i i would be happy to revisit um but yeah and there's shows that i work on with people that get they get completed but they don't necessarily get produced and um it's just you know i have to just be grateful for the ones that did um i love the shows i did with cheryl davis uh bridges which is i think such an important show and i really love her work on it we've seen uh, amas do a major presentation and then we had the world premiere in in at, uh, berkeley um and that deals with two seminal civil rights uh cases the uh 1965 march in selma and opposition to prop 8 in um Oakland in 2008 and this three generations of a biracial family who were you know um intertwined in these stories it's it's very interesting to me and we also did barnstormer together about Bessie Coleman uh, the first african american aviatrix that we know as tricks from the drowsy chaperone <laughs> um so uh we you know we we've, we've had some nice and this don't stay safe which was a small digital film that we did for Prospect Theater Company during the pandemic which uh earned a drama league nomination um which we've wanted to expand that we've heard there were people interested in having us expand it and so if they're still out there we're happy to look at a 17 minute film and create something that's closer to an hour and 10 minutes you know a uh, perfect length for the Edinburgh Film Festival uh, the French Festival <laughs> uh so Yeah, you know, sometimes I even forget about shows I've worked on. There've been so many. <laughs> And so I'd love to kind of close by asking in today's world with some things having been changed like less opportunities for ASCAP type events and all that, what advice would you give to someone just starting out as a theater writer? I think that um adaptations are great we love being able to say oh based on that movie based on that book we all love right it's there's already the brand so marketing people love you for that but i think ultimately be true to yourself write you know you always hear write from what you know and and somehow that is the most compelling vision of all and i feel like there's sometimes when you land on a show that is someone else's baby they they originated the idea and yet you feel a very strong identification with the characters and they they just call to you in a very profound way that's what happened with no way to treat a lady that's what happened with the gig that's what happened with the opposite of sex and to a certain degree with valentino's tango yeah um and then you know if if you feel that identification if you feel that these characters have reason to sing then do everything in your power to devote yourself to that process because there's a reason why younger people create and older people create as well but the stamina needed 
you know, when you think about it, Sondheim didn't write another show after Wise Guys until this latest show, which finally is getting on posthumously. It's the stamina that is needed because musicals, as I hopefully articulate in and illustrate in um, How to Survive a Killer Musical, musicals are killers. They demand everything from you. You have no life if you're really true to your vision and to the needs of the musical. You have to surrender yourself to that show. If you're willing to do that, then you're tapping into a place of passion that is going to fuel your show and give it the life you need. It's almost like a Frankenstein monster. You know, you you have to have that commitment that Dr. Frankenstein had to breathe life into the creation. So that's my advice. Find those projects. And if you don't find them, just enjoy the process. Enjoy working with people. Figure out what you like to do best, what you're best at, what people you like working with and what people you don't like working with. It's all a series of stages, a process of elimination that gets you to that place so that when you finally meet that right project, you'll be ready to fall in love. That is such great advice. And thank you so much for doing this. It's been such a pleasure to get to talk to you. Her. Charles, the same here. I so applaud what you do. <laughs> I'm just so, we're all so grateful to you, truly. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. Remember to buy How to Survive a Killer Musical and make sure to come back next time when I will be joined by three-time Tony nominee Terrence Mann. Among the many Broadway musicals in which Terrence Mann has starred are Les Mis, Beauty and the Beast, Cats, Pippin, The Scarlet Pimpernel, Rags, Jerome Robbins Broadway, Tuck Everlasting, and Barnum. He also appeared in the Broadway play Getting Away with Murder, and off-Broadway in Assassins, Only Gold, and Jerry Springer, The Opera. Among his screen credits are the movie of A Chorus Line and Apple TV's current series Foundation. You won't want to miss this interview with one of Broadway's biggest stars, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.